Today's reading is Acts 15, 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The word of the Lord. All right. All of us are liberals. All of us are liberals. All Christians are liberals. How's that for a provocative opening? I think that's a good one. Now, at this very moment, I'm sure a good number of you are going, no, actually, I'm not. And, and uh, it's not something that I've ever personally been accused of, uh, except by the most uh, uh, reactionary types. And so what do I mean? I must accept the label, though, myself, as I say that all of us are that. I include myself in that us. So what do I mean that all Christians are liberals? Well, here's something I could mean, but I don't. Uh, to be an American is almost definitionally, if you consider yourself a, a you know, good American, you're a liberal, regardless of whether or not you're a conservative or a progressive. 
To be a liberal in this, in this sense, in the political sense of our country, just means we believe in certain fundamental freedoms. Freedom to express our opinions. Freedom to practice our religion. Freedom to go about our business secure in our person and our property. And that the government can't coerce us. It can't restrain us. It, it can't seize us. It can't search us. It can't detain us without legal justification. And so as Americans, we believe, right, written right there in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, not inalienable, but unalienable rights, such as life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. What is the, the, the Bill of Rights, if not a list of these freedoms, which a vast majority of us hold so dear? And so I dare say that almost by default, most American Christians are political liberals. So I could mean that when I say that. But here's one thing I don't mean when I say that, that we're not all liberal Protestants. In fact, I think it's impossible to truly be a liberal Protestant today. We're all at most post-liberal Protestants. And here's what I mean. The liberal Protestantism was the project that was launched in Germany in the late 18th century that believed in the power of human reason and in human progress and, and the ability of humankind to build the kingdom of God on earth. It's this great faith in, in our ability to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and so the Protestant liberal project said that if we just dare to know if we dare to leave behind the superstitious or, or the outmoded or outdated or ignorant beliefs of our pre-enlightenment forebears, then we can forge a Christian faith which will, will work in, in this modern, rationalistic, scientific era of progress. And the apotheosis of, of, of the spirit of liberal Protestantism was captured by the great American theologian H. Richard Niebuhr in, in this book, as he's looking back on the project, it's called The Kingdom of God in America. And he defines it as this. It's one of my favorite quotes and sayings. He says, a God, liberal Protestantism is a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And he's looking back because he sees that this progress, this, this, this belief in, in the inevitable progress of humankind had been dealt a mortal blow by the horrors of the First World War. And the fact that it was in, in, in Germany, but even in the Anglophone countries too, the, 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 the Protestant professors of, of theology and of biblical studies who had been some of the greatest and most, most vociferous cheerleaders and champions of this war, which itself was framed as a war for progress. And so those who came back from this war, those who witnessed uh, its horrors in the trenches, once again came to understand the depths of human depravity, sin, and cruelty that were hidden behind the veneer of progress. And our complete inability to save ourselves apart from the radical inbreaking of God's grace into the world. The Great War shattered the myth of progress behind liberal Christianity. 
So clearly, I'm not saying we're all liberals in that sense, nor just because we happen to be Americans. But actually, when we look at our passage today, we see that Christians are liberals in a much deeper and a much more radical meaning, getting at the root and the core sense. We're liberals in the sense that in Christ we are free. That's the true meaning of Christian liberalism that we see in our passage this morning. And so I want to explore four different aspects of it today. First, the threat of Christian liberalism. Second, how do you discern, discern the meaning and the, the extent of it? Third thing is the obligations of Christian liberalism. And last, what is the essence of Christian liberalism? So first, the threat of liberalism, the threat of freedom. Now, to unpack, we've got to understand what kind of freedom we're talking about. And so we see that in, in this controversy that's at the beginning of our passage this morning. Paul and Barnabas, they've just completed their first missionary journey, and it's, and it's been successful beyond what they could have imagined. They've proclaimed the gospel throughout uh, Asia Minor, throughout what is modern-day Turkey, and they've gone and they've established all of these churches, and people have responded, especially Gentiles, especially non-Jews, have responded with great favor and positivity to their message about Jesus as the Messiah. Many had placed their faith in him, they had received the Holy Spirit, they'd been baptized, and they joined this family called the church. Now we hear that and we think, well, of course, no problem. You go out, you preach, some people are converted, they get baptized, they join the church. That's just how things go. That's what you do. But in the early church, in, in, in the first Christian century, the first decades after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, one of the burning theological debates, it wasn't about whether one could be a Gentile and a Christian. That was not the issue. It was about the extent to which one had to become Jewish to become a Christian. The question was a live one, hotly debated. If you became a Christian, did you need to get circumcised and become law-observant? I.e., did you need to keep kosher dietary restrictions? Did you need to strictly observe the Sabbath? See, those three things, circumcision, uh, kosher dietary rules— and, and Sabbath keeping, those were the three practices that made Jewish people in the ancient world strange and weird. That along with their um, iconoclastic monotheism, the fact that they had one God, but there was no images of that God. That was very weird. It was weird when, when the, the, the Greeks went into the Jerusalem temple and they sacked it, and they went into the Holy of Holies, and they didn't see any statues or images to this God. It was very, very, very strange. To an ancient pagan. Now Barnabas and Paul, they come back from their missionary journey and they're rejoicing because they founded all of these churches and they've won all of these converts to a gospel that doesn't require Gentiles to become observant Jews in order to be a Christian. And for some of their Christian brethren from a Jewish background, that wasn't just a problem, it was a betrayal. Why? This dispute about Christian freedom, it really gets to the heart of the gospel. What is the Christian message, really? And the controversy here was not, as it sometimes gets framed, between, you know, progressives on the one hand, uh, like Paul and Barnabas, and, and who are the good guys, and, 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 and then conservatives in the Pharisaic Christians who are the bad guys, or 
you know, traditionalists versus innovators. When we frame it like that, we're really missing the point. I love what N.T. Wright says on this. He says, but we must become very, very clear about one thing. Acts 15 is not simply a matter of tradition versus innovation. It cannot be used as a stick with which to, you know, beat anyone who resists any new proposal. But look, in Acts 15, it was the traditionalists who were wrong. Acts 15 concerns not a general or abstract point about tradition and innovation, but a very specific, concrete point which is central to the whole of early Christianity. And it's this, precisely because God has fulfilled his covenant with Israel in sending Jesus as Messiah, the covenant family, God's people Israel, is now thrown open to all without distinction. It isn't a matter, it can't be a matter of belonging to one particular ethnic group. No matter how sacred, how chosen, how blessed with God's presence and entrusted with carrying his promise to the world. It is time for that promise to be delivered, not kept as a private possession. This was what the tradition at best was actually all about. That gets to the heart of it. The disagreement at its core was about what the gospel is, what Jesus Christ really accomplished, and how that fit within the greater story of Israel as told in its scriptures. And so the question then is about what role do works of the law, which includes circumcision, play in salvation and in belonging to the people of God in light of Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Barnabas are saying their time is up. Law observance is no longer necessary. And and the Pharisaic Christians, the party from Judea, they say the law's time will never be up. So what's at stake isn't freedom as a general principle, but freedom in Christ that is at the very heart of the gospel. And the threat that this poses for the party from Judea is that in declaring that the law is no longer necessary for Gentiles, and, and then actually by implication Jews too, They're going to be in some way just just assimilating themselves with the rest of society. If you lose this, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose what has allowed God's people to remain a distinct people and survive and persevere through millennia. You know, they had survived slavery, the wilderness, the conquest, Conflicts with with the great powers of of the world where they were caught in the middle. The destruction of their temple, uh, exile, return, cultural pressure from the Egyptians and then the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Greeks and now the Romans. They had seen civilizations rise and fall all around them and they had kept the faith by keeping their traditions. And now Paul and Barnabas were saying that Gentiles could enter the family without keeping the law, without maintaining the one thing that had allowed Jews to keep the flame of ethical monotheism burning through many dark centuries. To Paul and Barnabas' opponents, this didn't sound like freedom. It sounded like surrender, like capitulation. That's the risk of Christian freedom. 
that instead of gaining anything, you're actually just losing everything. This brings me to the second point and the most crucial point of all them, when we understand the stakes. How did the early church discern the meaning and, and the extent of Christian freedom? And so what they did was, was call what's called the First Jerusalem Council. That's what we're seeing in our passage, sometimes also called the First Ecumenical Council of the church, meaning it brought, brought Christians together from, from over the world to discern the meaning and extent of Christian freedom. And, and so this has served as a model for Christian discernment and decision-making on, on, on weighty matters ever since. And so the way they dealt with this controversy is they got the parties together for debate. So Paul and Barnabas and the Christian Pharisees were invited to Jerusalem, which was the, the central church of that time, the most important and prominent church of that time, uh, to make their case. The deliberations were led by the apostles and the elders, so uh, these were the people who were called and gifted and entrusted by God uh, with the authority and the responsibility for these decisions. And so crucially, we see how they engage in this debate and this discussion and this controversy. And crucially, we see two things here, is, is that there's an appeal both to God's work and to God's word. Now, sometimes this passage will get talked about in terms of people, kind of the weighing of personal experience versus Scripture. But that's not what's happening here in the text. Peter doesn't get up and talk at all about his personal experience at all. Instead, what he does is he testifies to what God has done. You know, Peter was just praying by himself one day when he was given this vision. God gave him a vision and told him to go preach Go to the household of the Roman Cornelius. Otherwise, Peter would never have done that. But he did. And, and when Peter got that and he met with Cornelius' household, he, he couldn't even finish his sermon before God had poured out the Holy Spirit. And they were baptized that very day. And the same holds true for the very brief summary given by Paul and Barnabas. They, they didn't appeal to their personal experience, but instead to their experience of seeing God do signs and wonders. This was bearing witness to the work of God. And the reason, then, that they believed that Gentiles didn't need to keep the law is that when they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the message that, 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 that in him, God had brought about the forgiveness of sins. That when they did this, God showed up without these Gentiles first submitting themselves to the law. And then James gets up, and he provides kind of the definitive statement and summary and conclusion. And, and this was quite surprising, actually, given, given James's role in the early church. James is the brother of Jesus, and, and James is associated with uh, the, 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 the epistle of James in our New Testament. And so if there's anyone who's going to be about works of the law, faith and good works, it's going to be James. And in fact, you can view this, this, this whole first council as kind of a, a potential um, conflict between, you know, Paul and Barnabas on one hand, they've got their law-free gospel. You've got James and his, you know, law-filled gospel. And then you've got Peter who sort of plays politics well. He kind of shuttles between the two parties based on, on, on circumstances and, and where the winds are blowing. So if anyone was going to be on the side of the Pharisaic Christians, you think it's going to be James. 
But instead, you know, what, what we see is that far from this debate, far from this controversy, uh, driving these parties who were, who were thought to be fragmented and fractured further apart, th- this process of discernment actually achieved an even deeper unity. And so what James adds to this conversation, though, is the perspective of Scripture. And he chooses a passage from the prophet Amos. You know, it's talking about the, the day of, of the Lord when God acts decisively uh, in the life of his people, but also in, 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 in the history of the world. And it's this scripture in Amos points to God's restoring the household of David in the last days. And when that happens, then the Gentiles are going to be included in the family of God. And this will be on the same basis as the Jews, faith in God's promises. And so the gospel then, it it reveals actually what's been true from the very beginning, that that God has chosen a people in in order to bless and to love and to serve and to save the whole world through them. And Jesus Christ then is the pinnacle. He's the climax that that the entire law was pointing to and, and to which the entire tradition had been building. So Peter, Paul, and James aren't saying then that the law is bad. Their verdict was that the law had done its job. And Christian freedom now means what Peter captures so wonderfully as as Luke presents his, his speech, where Peter says this, God made no distinction between us, Christians from a Jewish background, and them, Christians from a Gentile background. God made no distinction between us and them. Having cleansed their hearts by faith, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So here we get a clear distillation of the gospel message that God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That both of their hearts are cleansed by faith. That both are saved on the same basis by the grace of the Lord Jesus through faith. So this was, you know, no mere quibble over uh, tradition and, and, and innovation. It's a crucial moment, a decisive moment in the church's theological development. At stake weren't preferences, but the very essence of the gospel itself, which answers those questions at the heart of Christianity. On what basis is one, is one saved and included in the people of God? And the answer then and now is by grace through faith. But it doesn't stop there. Bring me to the third point I want to look at, the the obligations of Christian liberty. Because what we see here is that, well, James doesn't compromise when it comes to Christian truth. He does seek conciliation in the name of Christian love. And so it's incumbent upon those living in Christian freedom to use this freedom not as an excuse to do whatever you want, but to maintain fellowship with your fellow Christians. So a central, you know, practical question that occupied the early church was, okay, if we have this Jew plus Gentile community, how can these Gentiles who are not law observant worship and eat together with Jewish Christians who are? If Christian unity demands that they do so, but cultural practices work against that, is there any way out of this bind? And the answer that James 
and the council come up with. It's also drawn from Scripture. It's not so explicit, but, but within these ethical demands that come at the end of the passage, namely that Gentile Christians abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood, behind these are many passages in the Old Testament, but especially a few from the book of Leviticus that are about how uh, those who are Gentiles who are living in Jewish territory, how, how, how they can coexist, how Jews and Gentiles can live and work together. And so James, again, is able to look to Scripture for guidance, and he finds there an applicable precedent that should work for both parties so that they can coexist in the same church and enjoy table fellowship and thus the Lord's Supper together. That's what it's leading to, eating at the same table, being able to partake together of the Lord's body and blood. And so while Christian liberalism means that we are free from the law of Moses, we are not freed from the law of love. We are not freed from seeking to live at, at peace and in unity with our Christian brothers and sisters, and as much as we can, we accommodate ourselves to their scruples. And so notice that the council attends to both Christian theology and Christian life, and, and it recognizes the inextricable connection between those two things. They took pains to both preserve the gospel from corruption and the church from fragmentation. And, and they, they lived within the dynamic tension that was created by those two things. And, and the danger is always that, that you, you know, we will attempt to resolve that tension one way or the other too quickly. And finally, at the very end here, I want to touch, though, on what is the true essence of this Christian liberalism I'm talking about, the true meaning of Christian freedom. Because we cannot gloss over the fact that the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, this is a seminal moment, a watershed moment for the Christian faith. After this, there's, there's no going back. It's this clear and unequivocal declaration that being a Christian didn't require becoming a Jew. Now, it did not mean replacing Jews and Judaism. The church wasn't a, a replacement of Israel, but an expansion of Israel's territory. And a radical, again, getting back to the root, reframing of what it meant to be saved and belong in light of the fact of Jesus Christ. You know, we, Jew and Gentile, are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through faith without distinction. And it was this move that has defined the Christian church and the Christian message going forward. It's why we Gentiles are here in this sanctuary today. My ancestors were, you know, German barbarians and, you know, Nordic Vikings and Celtic pagans. That's my history. That's my background. Not, you know, any God-fearing Jews in the number, yet here I am. By the grace of God. And so it was this move that defined Christianity, and it's also this move that defined the Reformation and the birth of Protestantism. And so as I was reflecting on uh, uh, this passage this week and the meaning of Christian freedom, the true meaning of Christian freedom, it, it gave me occasion to read again one of my favorite uh, little treatises by, it's not that little, but it's by Martin Luther. And it's probably like one of the, if you have to read anything to kind of understand as a primary text, the message of Luther and of the Reformation, it's, it's this treatise he wrote called The Freedom of a Christian. I remember discovering it in, in seminary. They had these, Luther's works are huge. 
too much to read, way too much to read. But Fortress Press put out this four-volume series, and it's so good. And I had, that's one of my first things I bought with, when I was out of seminary with my continuing ed money, was this series of four books. And so I love the, 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 these crucial works of Luther, and this is the most crucial of all. And so for Luther, as he's writing this, medieval Catholicism, it's become something akin to the law of Moses. He's saying the focus, you know, he's this Augustinian monk, uh, and, 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 and all he's hearing is law and not gospel. He's hearing God's commandments, but not God's promises. He's hearing about the terrors of hell, but not the joys of heaven. And the focus in his whole life was on what Christians should do, you know, not on what Christians should do first and foremost, and not on what God had done for us in Christ. And so Luther was desperate to hear good news and not to be told just all of the things that he needed to do in order to remain in a state of grace. And grace, which was supposed to be this free and this undeserved gift from God, had had become this commodity that the church controlled and distributed and could be bought and sold. And Luther said famously in this essay and, and correctly on the true meaning, he made these two statements on the true meaning of Christian freedom. He said, first, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So Christians are totally free because through faith we are wedded. And, and Luther pulls this uh, image from Ephesians uh, about um, our life in Christ, our faith in Christ as, as being uh, akin to a, a marriage or a wedding. And what happens when you get married, for better or for worse? Uh, you join two people, two households, uh, and, and so uh, what belongs to one party belongs to the other, and, 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 and so you get to both kind of share each other's baggage. Well, we get the great end of the deal in this marriage with Christ, the spiritual marriage with Christ. Because we get what belongs to him, and he gets what belongs to us. He gets our sin, our condemnation, and our death, and we get his grace, his blessing, and salvation. And we become who he is, a king and a priest. Kings such that all things work together for our good, even evil and suffering. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's what it means to be a king in Christ. And to be a priest, meaning we can stand before God in his presence. And we also become who he is, not just as a king and a priest, but as a servant who are freed to serve our neighbors in love without regardless of whether they deserve it or not, because we don't. Their gratitude, because we're not very grateful, whether they like us or not, and without regard to the ability to reciprocate. Christian liberalism means this. Luther says, a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and his neighbor. Otherwise, he is not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith, in his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God. By love, he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. That is the true freedom of the Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian liberal. And I'm proud to be one. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please join with me in prayer.